Greetings and welcome to episode 53 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today our topic is Japanese rule in Southeast Asia. After Pearl Harbor, after December 1941, we saw that that was largely uh, not really a distraction, but it was a means of keeping the United States Navy from interfering with the Japanese blitzkrieg across Southeast Asia. Um, now last time in our last episode, we talked about uh, Japanese rule during sort of the wartime era in the late 1930s and 1940s in Taiwan and Korea, two of the, uh, well, the two longest held colonies of the Japanese Empire. Now with Southeast Asia, uh, you don't get nearly as long of a time period to see uh, shifts and evolution in Japanese uh, 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 political policy towards these lands. You literally have, you know, less than four years, all right, uh, in most of these cases. So what we're going to talk about is what uh, uh, the Southeast Asian politicians, what these countries uh, uh, did in response to the arrival of the Japanese. Obviously, they had very little choice in the matter. Uh, Japanese armies come in. You know you can't defeat them. All right. In some cases, such as in Burma, uh, Philippines, and Indonesia, you've you have quite literally just watched them drive out uh, who you previously thought were the most powerful people on the planet. Um, so you know if they can defeat them and make the white Europeans and Americans tuck tail and run in such humiliating fashion, um, then you're probably not going to be very confident in your own ability to push back the Japanese. So the Japanese are coming. Uh, how are you going to deal with it? We're going to talk about four countries, sort of four case studies, all right? We have Thailand, Burma, Indonesia, and the Philippines. And we're going to see how each country, or at least the politicians, the leaders of each country, will respond to the arrival of the Japanese uh, in accordance with uh, their own agenda, their own political agenda. Most of them are going to think, uh, how do the Japanese, um, um, how can their arrival help me achieve my own goals um, without creating uh, you know, significant dissatisfaction among the Japanese where they might actually try to restrain me or, you know, insert themselves into our country any more than they already have. Let's keep the Japanese at a superficial distance and try to leverage their resources to achieve our own aims. That's what any good politician anywhere in the world is going to try to do. Um, so brief overview, brief overview before we get started. Thailand. Uh, its goal is to maintain its vaunted independence. Okay, this is uh, any country that manages to never be formally colonized by a European power is usually quite proud of that status. Um, and Thailand, uh, you know, it's one of these countries that we, you know, we talked about this early on in, in the the first couple episodes of the Japanese Empire. It's not as though Thailand was independent and was never colonized because they were capable of defeating the European empires and they're somehow special as opposed to the Vietnamese, the Laos, um, or the Burmese, um, you know, there were larger historical conditions that uh, sort of benefited Thailand and made the uh, Western powers say, hey, we're going to keep this as a buffer zone. Nevertheless, Thailand was independent. So your goal when the Japanese come is to do whatever you can to maintain your independence. Uh, in Burma, 
you are subordinate to the British, and you're not too happy about that because the majority Burmese population is generally dis discriminated against. So your, your goal when the Japanese come and kick out the British is to try to overturn the pre-existing status quo that the majority of the population was unhappy with and flip the script. Indonesia, we're going to see in general, is a much messier and less decisive version of Burma. Some of you have a couple of leaders who will say, hey, we're going to try to flip the, the uh, script of what the Dutch were doing here and you know, move a little bit towards independence, but you know, so many more ethnic groups, a much larger spread out country, they're going to have you know, constant anxiety over uh, to what degree do we need to use the Japanese to try to kick out the foreigners, and to what degree do we still need the Japanese actually kind of unite our own country. We're not too comfortable uh, in completely moving towards full independence at this stage like the Burmese were. And then finally, the Philippines. Uh, the Philippines were an, an, an American colony, not British or Dutch colony, um, but there in the Philippines, you also had promises already. The Americans had already promised Filipino leaders that uh, we will give you independence uh, in the near future. It's not like sort of this abstract date 500 years in the future. Uh, it was felt like that was imminent. And so some Filipino leaders, they say, we're not going to engage the Japanese at all. And they go into exile. They leave with the American armies. Um, and they say, we're, and, you know, we're just going to wait out the Japanese uh, because the Japanese can't possibly give us a better deal than what the Americans have already promised us. Okay, and one of the things that we're going to be looking at, one of the key litmus tests that sort of will indicate the approach and the response of, East, of each Southeast Asian elite towards the Japanese is how do they deal with the invitation to attend the Greater East Asia Conference in Tokyo in 1943, 1943, sort of the height of the Japanese Empire in which you've conquered as much territory as the empire is ever going to conquer um, and you haven't yet started to lose it or you know start to realize hey uh, we're we, we really are going to lose this war because the Americans and, uh, and uh, uh, British and Australians haven't quite made the inroads into the Pacific Islands that they will eventually make in 44 and 45. All right. Um, how are they going to deal with this? Because that's a big deal. Um, when the Japanese say, hey, we've got this thing called the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. Are you on board or not? One of the things that determines whether or not you're on board or not in the eyes of the Japanese, are you going to attend this highly visible, highly publicized conference in Tokyo? Um, that will have repercussions. All right. For 1943, you don't know yet. If the Japanese necessarily are going to lose unconditionally, if they'll win, or if they'll lose conditionally, and then maybe they'll be able to retain some of the things that they put in place, and by extension, you'll be able to retain some of the, the gains that you might have made in leveraging the Japanese presence. Um, so it's a, it's a tough decision. Are you going to go? Are you going to be enthusiastic? Are you going to go but try to keep a low profile? Are you going to reject the invitation entirely? Because how you think the war is going to end will determine any sort of repercussions that will be visited upon you from your stance towards the Greater East Asia Conference in Tokyo. All right, let's do our four case studies. Let's start with Thailand. As we said, Thailand, uh, the only sort of fully independent ally of Japan or nominal ally of Japan in Asia during World War II. Okay, uh, Thailand had already gained some goodwill from the Japanese uh, in the uh, earlier in the 1930s because they were the only League of Nations state 
to abstain from the Leighton Report on Manchukuo. Remember the Leighton Report? Several episodes ago we talked about with the creation of the puppet state of Manchukuo in 1932. League of Nations had to, you know, do something to make it look like it cared. Um, they weren't going to, you know, actually go to war or do anything forceful against Japan, but they said, hey, we got to create some paperwork that shows that we care, um, or else why do we exist? So they sent in uh, a team to investigate uh, conditions on the ground. They produced the Leighton Report, which essentially, you know, criticized Japanese rule said this is a puppet state. Not perhaps in those exact words, but that was the general sense. Um, and Japan, as a result, withdrew from the League of Nations. That was a very drastic move. Um, and pretty much every other country in, in the uh, League of Nations uh, agreed with the Leighton Report, echoed its findings, except for Thailand. Thailand abstained from condoning and praising the Leighton Report. Um, and Japan took note. They took note. Hey, this is one of the only other states, uh, and it's in Asia too, um, that uh, seems to have a friendly disposition for us. Why? Uh, well, Thailand had been home to, you know, in these decades, the uh, first half of the 20th century, it was home to many modernizing young politicians who genuinely admired what Japan had done over the last 40 years. Remember Thailand, these Thai leaders are going to be uh, uh, thinking, growing up, thinking that Thailand is somehow special. Uh, we haven't been colonized. Uh, we might be the next Japan. We have the potential to be a semi-Japanese type state in the world. Uh, you know, it's just Japan and us. Japan and us are the only ones in Asia that haven't been colonized. Um, and so there's a particular admiration for what the Japanese are doing. Okay, I mean, obviously, it's easy to admire from a distance when they aren't actually in your country. Um, now, who is in charge in Thailand? Well, when the Japanese arrive, you have uh, the recent rise of a politician whose name is uh, difficult to pronounce. Uh, uh, bear with me here, unless you are fluent in Thai. Uh, Plak Thibensongkram. All right, a young military officer who gained the premiership in 1938. He's still in power during World War II, and it's going to be Thibon Songkram who deals with the Japanese. Uh, for uh, 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 simplicity's sake, uh, Plak Thibon Songkram is usually abbreviated as Songkram. So we're going to refer to the uh, chief leader of Thailand at this time period as Songkram. Now, Songkram pursues a multifaceted strategy. All right, let's work with Japan and be their nominal ally, sort of build on the goodwill of abstaining from the Leighton Report. Let's work with them so as to avoid the worst excesses of a military occupation, because you resist, that's what you get. Um, we can't really defeat the, the Japanese army, but let's try and use Japan to further Thailand's own political prospects. What sort of things can we do that will strengthen our state, make it bigger, help us achieve uh, pre-existing uh, goals that we already had before the Japanese came while minimizing the excesses of a Japanese occupation or just being the ally of someone who is engaged in heavy fighting with the most powerful uh, 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 powers on the planet. Okay, now, the first thing that Thailand did, uh, even before Japan sort of does their blitzkrieg throughout Southeast Asia, in 1940, uh, the Thai army uh, uses the war in Europe um, and the Japanese occupation of French Indochina. Remember, sort of Vichy France and Japan gets the right to put its troops in, and because it's a nominal ally, uh, because Vichy France has been conquered by the Germans, uh, Japan sort of gets French Indochina, even though technically it's, uh, it's still under... Uh, the uh, French, uh, sort of the puppet government of the French. Um, at that same time period, the Thai army uses that development to occupy disputed borderlands on both their western and eastern uh, uh, fronts. 
Okay, uh, they say first on the Burmese side, we're going to, you know, uh, send our soldiers in to occupy land that we say, you know, we think historically belongs to us. Um, and then they also do it on the eastern side, the Laos and Cambodian border, uh, the areas where Thailand shares a border with Laos and Cambodia to the east and to sort of to the southeast. Um, they say you know, this is a perfect opportunity in which either the uh, European powers like the British and Burma are distracted by the war and they're not going to want to pick a fight or, you know, uh, respond to us because they're fighting in Europe now. Um, or with French Indochina, they're going to say, well, you know, uh, technically the French are no longer in power here. This is the Germans in power who are friendly to the Japanese. Uh, this is also a wonderful time to sort of take some of that territory that, you know, again, Bill Marshall arguments that say, oh, historically this belongs to us, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so they occupy lands on both sides. And each time that Songkram negotiates with the Japanese and the Japanese say, we need your logistical assistance here. You need to let us have planes land here. But, you know, as we uh, launch an invasion of Burma to the west, uh, each time that Songkram negotiates with them, he secures more Japanese promises for help in solidifying the uh, uh, territories that Thailand has taken on all of its borderlands. For example, in 1943, Japan promises in exchange for Thai cooperation, uh, the four Muslim Malayan provinces in the south. Uh, if, you, if you're familiar with the geography of Thailand at all, uh, in the south, uh, where you have awesome scuba diving, <laughs> um, in the south there is a peninsula that sort of goes, uh, uh, curves down and eventually uh, uh, comes towards the Indonesian islands. And uh, much of that peninsula is uh, actually Muslim, not Buddhist, like uh, the rest of Thailand to the north. Um, and those were uh, uh, provinces that the British um, had, uh, that the British had since 1909. Um, and Thailand had thought, hey, you know, these should belong to us. Um, you know, these are part of the Thai nation. It's a disputed borderland. And the Japanese say, you know, yeah, we drove the British out um, and we'll promise that in exchange for your support, you will get to these four Muslim Malayan provinces in the south uh, that I believe today have uh, reverted back to the independent, the independent nation of Malaysia. Um, but nevertheless, this was part of the negotiations that are going on at the time period. And as I said, not all of these uh, territorial gains will hold up after the war, but some of them do. It's very messy and complex, but if you look into the nitty-gritty details of all this sort of stuff, you'll find out that Thailand does essentially get bigger during World War II, and it's a direct result of, uh, you know, leveraging the Japanese presence into uh, uh, small gains, not all of which hold up, but some of them do. Now, how does Songkram deal with the actual arrival of the Japanese military? He's got a delicate situation, as all politicians are in a delicate situation in uh, Thailand like this. In order to maintain domestic political legitimacy in an independent Thailand, he has to declare, he has to tell his people, I'll fight any invader. No one invades our country without a fight. All right, that just doesn't happen. But he knows Thailand can't beat J uh, Japan. The Thai army cannot beat the Japanese army. All right, but you also can't afford to give any appearance of being Japan's puppet government either. So Songkran comes up with an ingenious political uh, solution, as any politician who hopes to maintain power has to be able to please all sides in a very contradictory fashion without letting each side know that you have essentially done the exact opposite thing uh, to a different constituency. Um, what he does is he arranges for Thai military forces to clash accidentally with Japanese forces on the Malayan Peninsula without Songkram's explicit knowledge, 
right? Or at least give him plausible denial that he didn't know this was going to happen. Here's how it all plays out. On December 8th, 1941, when Japan invades the southern Malayan Peninsula to take Singapore and drive the British out of Malaysia, uh, Songkram does an eastern border inspection of Thailand. He, he, he leaves Bangkok um, and goes off to the eastern territories of Thailand in the direction of Laos and Cambodia um, and, you know, makes it seem like, hey, this is just sort of my typical duties, some military officer, we have to inspect the troops on the eastern borderland and all that sort of stuff. Um, he probably knows that the Japanese are invading uh, the Malaysian Peninsula, however. While he's out of Bangkok, Thai troops stationed in the south uh, encounter the Japanese, as Songkram probably knew they were going to do. Uh, but because he's out of Bangkok, and he, you know, this isn't the age of instant texting and internet and all of that, uh, the Thai troops do what they're trained to do. Invaders come into your independent country, you fight them. And Thai troops do clash with Japan and they have when they engage in one day of fighting. All right. Then Songkram conveniently returns the very next day and orders a halt to the fighting and quickly signs an agreement of alliance with Japan. Here's what Songkram just did. He can now tell both his Thai citizens and the future Western powers that he resisted the Japanese but was overwhelmed by superior military force. All right, he's covered all of his bases. If the Japanese lose the war, he can tell uh, the Western powers, hey, I didn't really cooperate with Japan. Look, we fought them. We had a whole legitimate day of fighting against them when, when they arrived, and we lost. <laughs> or, 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 you know, I mean, we can't really defeat the Japanese, and you know that. And he tells his Thai subjects, we fought. All right, you don't have to be ashamed of your country. We fought the Japanese. Uh, and you, maybe to them, you say, we fought to a stalemate. And then to the Japanese, you say, sorry, uh, we didn't intend to fight you, but uh, I was not in Bangkok, and I didn't know this was happening, and I didn't know you guys were going to go all the way up the Malaysian Peninsula here. Um, and so he has a plausible excuse, plausible denial as to why Thai troops fought the Japanese for that one day. Okay, this is how he's going to sort of maintain his independence vis-a-vis -vis the Japanese. All right, you have to you have to cater to Thailand's proud legacy of independence, uh, not act like you're in thrall uh, to Japan, but you also have to reconcile yourself with the fact that you can't beat the Japanese and uh, they, their forces are right on your borders. Um, and then you know he signs a formal alliance with Japan, uh, which is already predisposed to be friendly towards. Thailand ever since the Leighton Report in the early 1930s, okay? Now, the World War II experience for Thailand is going to be rough, all right? There's no, you know, non-rough. There's no uh, smooth ride for anyone in Asia during World War II. Maybe parts of Thailand or, uh, Thailand, maybe parts of Taiwan are a little bit smooth. Boy, there's that Freudian slip that happens all the time. Thailand and Taiwan. <laughs> it's often something that you get uh, people say, you know, oh, you go to Taiwan often. Oh, your wife's Taiwanese or something like that. Uh, I love Thai food. <laughs> Uh, I remember one time being at a downtown in DC, one of these international days, and there was a Taiwan booth, and they even had a sign up, uh, a huge sign for anyone who walks by saying, uh, uh, Taiwan does not equal, equal sign with a slash through it, Taiwan does not equal Thailand, we don't eat Thai food. Uh, anyway, so that just sort of <laughs> slipped my mind right there again. Um, all right, uh, so... It will not be smooth sailing during World War II. You will have inflation. You will have shortages of goods. You will have Thai assets, financial assets will be frozen abroad. The Western powers can still do that to you. Uh, but this will be nothing like the, what happens to other Southeast Asian states. Most other Southeast Asian states will be active theaters of battle. 
especially Burma. Um, they will have insane inflation, insane shortages of goods. Um, you know, it's going to be much worse than Thailand's going to experience. Now, what does Songkram do with the Greater East Asia uh, Conference in Tokyo in November 1943? By that point, uh, he simply refuses to attend. He feels that he has enough leverage to say, you know what, this isn't going to be good. Uh, I think he's, you know, laying his cards on the table and saying, I think the Japanese probably aren't going to win this war. And we have enough independence and goodwill um, and leverage that I can refuse to attend. And Japan's not going to visit massive repercussions on me. Okay. Uh, Songkram doesn't actually uh, make it all the way to the end of the war. He's not killed, um, but uh, he is eventually forced out of power by a, a, a Thai cabinet that is starting to prepare for Japan's eventual surrender. And they say it's clear Japan's going to surrender now uh, by 1944, uh, 45. And they say Songkram, he did a great job, but uh, still he is uh, the face, the official face of our official alliance with Japan during World War II. We need to start cultivating goodwill among the British and the Americans who are going to dominate the post-war order. Um, and uh, uh, he eventually is forced out of power before the war is even over. When the British come back to Southeast Asia, they and the specifically the, Mal the Malaysian Peninsula and Burma, which is the closest they're going to get you know, physically, uh, uh, spatially, to Thailand, the British will actually say, we want to punish Phibin uh, uh, Songkram. Uh, and they target him for repercussions, but the United States eventually blocks that um, and says, no, 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 let's, let's let bygones be guy bygones. He had a tough situation to deal with. Um, and after the war, uh, Songkram will eventually return to power. The net result of all of this, Thailand maintains substantive independence. It's not just, you know, false, fake, uh, 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 superficial independence. They maintain, you know, real independence during World War II. They avoid the worst ill effects of World War II, and they maintain powerful Western goodwill. Okay? Uh, Burma. What's the situation going to be in Burma? All right, Burma has already been a British colony for quite a long time. All right, an eastern extension of British India. Um, and what you're going to see is that the Burmese, the majority ethnic group in Burma, um, I believe there's something like 70, 80% of the population. All right, I mean, it, is a, it is a clear majority. Uh, Burma is a, is a diverse, multi ethnic country, but there is a majority of Burmese. Uh, as opposed to other uh, minority peoples in their country, okay? The majority Burmese will express great enthusiasm for the so-called Japanese liberation of Burma from the hated British. Why? Bur the Burmese will have much to gain from the Japanese arrival and very little to lose. All right, what is uh, their leverage with Japan? Uh, well, they are a back door into China. They are a front door to India. So if Japan is hoping to really weaken the British and take the battle to the British, uh, Burma is your front door to India and trying to foment unrest in South Asia. All right, um, it's also and going to be one of the front lines of battle. There will be a Burma theater, vicious fighting in the jungle that will occur between the British, Australians, Americans, and the Chinese. Remember we said Chiang Kai-shek will send some of his best German-trained troops down to the Burma theater as well. That's where they will fight the Japanese. So strategically, Burma is going to be very important in a way that Thailand is not, because uh, Thailand is not on the front lines of being able to fight against the British in India. 
Um, and Burma is also a valuable source of natural resources such as petroleum um, and also foodstuffs such as rice. rice. Now the majority Burmese uh, were not too fond of the British for their own complex reasons. One of the very clear reasons of why they weren't very fond of the British is that the British had long used a policy, a time-tested policy of divide and rule. They got into Burma and they said, uh, let's find people who have been uh, disenfranchised, marginalized from the local uh, institutions of power and elevate them, put them into power, put a gun in their hands and use them to sort of restrain the majority Burmese. Uh, so the uh, ethnic group that the British tended to favor during their rule in Burma was a group known as the Karen. Karen, sort of the similar to, uh, been, uh, spelled the same way as the first name of Karen, uh, sort of a first name in the Western world. Uh, it's, it's the name of an ethnic group, the Karen ethnic group. They were the largest non-Burmese minority peoples in the country at around 10% of the population. And the British had long used the Karen for police and paramilitary duties, including the well-known Burma Rifles. Okay, um, so the Karen had benefited uh, from the British uh, uh, imperial rule in Burma. The majority Burmese generally did not, all right? And they often resented the power that was vested in the Karen minority group, which was largely to the northern regions of the country. So, most non-Burmese minorities, especially the Karen, favored the British and benefited from British rule, but the Burmese did not. Now, when the British retreat from Burma during the war, Okay, the Burmese immediately attack the Karen, all right, and they see the Japanese as a liberator who can help the Burmese achieve a nation state, an independent na uh, nation state. Of all the Southeast Asian countries, the Burmese are probably going to be the most enthusiastic in buying into Japanese discourse about uh, liberating Asians from the hated white imperialists from the West um, and uh, having everyone sign on to a greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. Uh, they have the most to gain, of course, from doing this as well. So Japan decides to adopt a concessionary approach to Burma. They say we're going to condone Burmese nationalism in order to encourage separatist movements against the British in neighboring India. Okay, um, you, you can see here that they're also going to play into and further the majority Burmese desire to kick out the British and put themselves in charge of a Burmese-dominated nation-state. All right, and so the Japanese then would also disproportionately uh, use the Karen for conscripted and forced labor, um, and they also uh, uh, targeted the Karen for repercussions, just like the Burmese did, because the British uh, aided insurgency. There was a British insurgency in the northern jungles of, and uh, mountains of Burma. Uh, they still were using the Karens, who they saw as their longtime natural ally in Britain, uh, so this is only going to increase some of that enmity, uh, some of that hostility between the Karen and the Burmese, uh, which both sides sort of continue to facilitate. The British continue to favor the Karen. The Japanese, uh, you know, quickly come in and say, we're going to favor the Burmese, and uh, it's in our interest to help them uh, think that we're going to allow them to achieve their own independent state. 
All right. Now, who is going to be the face of Japanese rule when the British and the Karen are sort of kicked out of the southern heartland of Burma? Uh, well, they're going to go into the uh, uh, British-run jails, and they're going to free whoever was critical of the British. You go into the jails, and you find someone who had once criticized the British, and that's why he was in jail. And you're going to say, well, that's perfect. We want someone who is sort of a Burmese nationalist, who was uh, uh, such a thorn in the side of the British that they actually felt like they had to put him in jail. This Burmese politician that the Japanese will free, is uh, uh, his name is Ba Ma, uh, uh, B-A, and then the uh, M-A-W, Ba Ma. Um, and they ask him to head what is essentially the first new Southeast Asian independent state in 1943. Okay, uh, Thailand's independent, but it isn't a, new, a newly independent state. Um, you know, Burma has been literally liberated, uh, freed from British rule, um, and the Japanese aren't controlling every single lever of power. Is it a puppet state? Well, we haven't even gotten to the point where you could make a decision like that. Uh, you're in, it's a wartime theater. Uh, Northern, Western Burma is an active military battleground, um, and yet you have allowed the Burmese, the majority Burmese, to wield the chief levers of power in the heartland of Burma. All right. Uh, so you you have created an independent Southeast Asian state that was not previously independent now. That's Burma in 1943. Bama is the most enthusiastic of all the Southeast Asian supporters of Japan in World War II. Between 1943 to 1945, all the way up until the end of the war, he will meet j uh, uh, top Japanese leaders five times. He'll form a personal friendship with uh, 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 Tojo Hideki, uh, the uh, top Japanese military leader who will be executed uh, for war crimes after World War II. In fact, uh, Ba Ma would get so close with uh, Tojo um, and so close with Japanese leadership um, that some people in the Japanese government actually started to fear that the Japanese had been too kind and too permissive to the Burmese um, uh, to the point where Tojo actually had to calm some of his Japanese colleagues in the imperial uh, bureaucracy um, and uh, uh, you know comfort them to say, you know, we haven't given too much autonomy to Burma. Don't worry. And he actually, at one point, we have a memo from him where he says, quote, please keep in mind that Burma's coveted independence was given only because of the presence of the imperial army. So you see here this dynamic. And uh, once again, the Burmese probably think that the Japanese, uh, you know, they're led to believe, it's in their interest to believe that the Japanese are true liberators. They actually are walking the talk. They have the talk, liberation, co-prosperity sphere, and they're walking it. They actually helped us kick out the hated British and put power into the hands of the majority ethnic group in our country. Um, and from the Japanese perspective, uh, you know, you can see that maybe, maybe they truly did believe that Burma one day will be independent, but you can see from this quote from Tojo um, that they're also saying, you know, we're only giving them this, you know, huge degree of independence because our the army, you know, the Japanese army is still in Burma. Um, and we'll see. Once we win the war and this is all over, we'll reassess what we're doing in Burma. But don't worry, they're not going to have as much influence uh, and uh, independence as it appears that they have right now. All right. Um, so Burma, uh, Bama was the most proactive participant, as you might expect as well, in the November 1943 Tokyo conference. Um, Bama's rule will collapse in 1944, um, when again, 44, uh, many, many people are starting to realize that Japan uh, will eventually lose this war, and we need to prepare for the return of the British and the Americans to the world stage. Um, and so the Burmese military, some of his officers actually defect to the Allies, um, and uh, he eventually does not fare too well. He actually then flees to Japan 
knowing that he's in deep shit. Uh, he worked so closely with the Japanese. He was such an enthusiastic participant. Uh, he was so prominent at that Tokyo conference in 1943. Uh, he knows he's in big trouble. Uh, there's going to be major repercussions for him. He flees to Japan uh, after his rule collapses in 1944, where he is eventually arrested during the U.S. occupation of Japan after 1945. After 1948, Burma will get its uh, its independence uh, from the British, and Bama will return to the country, although he's never influential again, and he actually ends up being thrown back in prison, not by the British this time, but by domestic authorities who have gained power in his absence. What about the Karen? The Karen do not get the hope for Karenistan from the British. That was one of the things that they always thought they were going to get. Karen leaders thought we give so much help to the British. We've been working together for, uh, with them for a long time. Now, when the British were kicked out of Burma, we continued to support them and fight and die for them in World War II. Surely, when the war is over, Japan is kicked out. The Burmese will get massive repercussions from the British, and the Karen, who have always been their steadfast uh, ally, will get an independent Karenistan. Um, and they don't. Um, and they feel very disillusioned by the British. In fact, it's the opposite. The Burmese still end up getting their independence. That's a legacy of the Japanese invasion of World War II, all right, uh, that you can't really, uh, uh, the Westerners can't come back in. Independence now has to be set in motion at a very uh, early date rather than sort of indeterminate time way in the future. Um, and the Karen are actually one of the most discontented ethnic groups in Myanmar today. The main lesson from the Burma case study is that in a country where you have a legacy of prior divisive imperial rule, i.e. the British favoring the Karen over the Burmese, um, this helps facilitate a strategy from a new invader, the Japanese, who then uh, uh, implement a new type of divisive imperial rule. We'll just favor the other ethnic group against the one that our previous ri imperial rivals had favored. And all these things determine the agenda, the interest, the level of uh, interest in cooperating or resisting the Japanese among each one of these countries. Let's move on to Indonesia. Indonesia is a messy one, and we need more research. I'll admit this right from the start, all right? Uh, there's a lot of things we don't know about uh, what's going on in Indonesia during these uh, 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 three years of the Japanese presence. We do know that it seems as though leaders in Indonesia uh, form an initial degree of cooperation with the Japanese that does devolve into profound disillusionment before the war, uh, but not to the point where you actually get concrete steps towards forming your own independent state like the Burmese were trying to do. Um, Indonesia has a very strategic location and abundant natural resources. From the J uh, Japan's perspective, this makes it way too valuable to grant any sort of appreciable autonomy. Okay. Uh, furthermore, unlike with uh, Burma, there was no neighboring India uh, to impress with independence. One of the things, you know, why you're also willing to give the Burmese uh, independence in 1943 is you're trying to impress the you know, Indians in South Asia. Hey, look, uh, if you overthrow the British and welcome the Japanese in, you might get this too, right? Uh, we'll also help you become independent. Uh, you don't necessarily have that um, with Indonesia. Um, and also the Dutch had, uh, they were the colonial rulers in Indonesia before. They had done very little prep work for future independence as well, all right? So you get this messy situation. Uh, you, your main nationalist leaders uh, in Indonesia during the 
World War II are two men, one known by uh, his name Mohammed Hatta and the other one Sukarno. Uh, if these names are at all familiar to you from studying the second half of the 20th century, you'll know that uh, Mohammed Hatta and Sukarno are the future president and vice president of post-war Indonesia and will play a very prominent role after the war. Um, like Bama in Burma, both of these men had been incarcerated in prison under the Dutch. Both of these men had a record of saying critical things about the Dutch. Um, but the Japanese don't respond to these two guys in the way that they responded to Bama. With Bama, the Japanese felt like, uh, you know, we can control this guy. It's, you know, we can work together with him. We have uh, uh, mutually dovetailing interests. Okay, um, and he represents, you know, a huge proportion of the uh, major ethnic group in Burma. Uh, Indonesia is so much more messy with its ethnic makeup. It's a non-contiguous territory, you know, all these islands over thousands of miles. Uh, Japanese southern uh, military headquarters in Saigon uh, actually refers to the prospect of cooperating with Hatta and Sukarno by saying, quote, attempting to utilize their cooperation is akin to playing with fire. All right, gives you some sense here. Uh, they didn't say that about Bama. Uh, with Indonesia, though, they're saying there are nationalist leaders. There are those who are critical of the former imp uh, Western imperial rulers that we just kicked out. Uh, nevertheless, we don't feel too comfortable here. Uh, we're not so sure if they're actually going to help facilitate our goals in Indonesia as well. Now, the initial reception of Japan in many parts of Indonesia is that, again, they were benevolent liberators of Western imperialism that we couldn't eradicate on our own. This early positive view of Japan seems to have been premised on the expectation that the Indonesians would be treated largely like Burma. Okay, but as I said, Indonesia was uh, strategically too important. It's the waterways that get you from East Asia into Southeast Asia. All right. Um, there are too many accessible resources to exploit. And the end result is that Japan will not promise independence of Indonesia until the war is already almost over. Okay, uh, they're not confident that if we give, you know, a significant amount of power and resources to Hatta and Sukarno, like we did with Bama and Burma, that they can actually unite this country and bring it behind us. See, Indonesia is so much more messier. Uh, you know, they, they don't have this clear ethnic majority throughout the country. The country itself is already so much more spread out. Um, they're not they're not at all confident that if we help these guys, free them from jail and help them, that they'll actually be able to unite the country. Maybe the country will just become a total nightmare of civil war and chaos, and then that's in no one's interest. Maybe, you know, they'll unite a certain constituency and then turn them against us. So the result is that without major promises of independence for Indonesia, the disillusionment, hey, they're not going to treat us like Burma, uh, the Japanese pretty much are seen as just replacing the Dutch at the top as your new imperialist rulers. The fact that they're Asian wears off as a novelty pretty quickly when you realize that on the ground, they're exactly the same as the old colonial rulers. In fact, in many ways worse, because the old colonial rulers weren't ruling you in an active uh, wartime environment. Now the Japanese, when they came in, it's war from the very beginning. You're going to be treated in a very stressful, uh, urgent way of exploitation. Uh, so another thing that we see, neither Hata nor Sukarno is invited to the November 1943 conference in Tokyo. Okay, um, that also gives you a sense. Uh, they're not even invited. They don't even have to make the decision of whether or not to go. Uh, they're, they're, they're not allowed to go. 
Okay. Um, Indonesians then are quickly disillusioned with the Japanese presence and uh, resistance uh, becomes widespread across the Indonesian islands. Okay. Um, now, Hatta and Sukarno, they're, they're an, an enigma. We need more research on these guys for what they actually did. We know the Japanese stance towards them is uh, 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 suspicious. We don't really know uh, what these guys will do if we try to work with them and give them real substantive autonomy or power. Um, but from their perspective, it seems as though they tried to be deliberately ambiguous about their stance towards the Japanese as well, which probably contributes to some of the confusion. They were very hesitant to be anti-Japanese. Okay, uh, They actually faced other grassroots Indonesian political movements that were much more stridently anti-Japanese than Hatta and Sukarno. Um, they also tried to align the ideals of Indonesian independence, Indonesian nationalism with the Japanese ideal of co-prosperity sphere, uh, without always explicitly advocating for independence. Here's a quote from Hatta in 1942. He says, quote, the people of Indonesia are not satisfied only with expressing gratitude to Japan for giving them great benefits. They wish to participate in the war for achieving the ideals of greater Asia, which has been the goal also of the nationalist movement of Indonesia. The very careful words of a politician there. We're expressing gratitude for Japan. You've, you, you, you've, you've helped us. You've kicked out the Dutch. You've kicked out Western imperialism throughout Asia. But we also want to participate in the war for achieving the ideals of greater Asia. And then he specifically says this has been our goal as well of the nationalist movement of Indonesia. He's basically saying the Japanese, you don't have a monopoly on ideals of independence. We had an ideal before you got here. And to the extent that you can help us achieve our pre-existing goals, we'll have a friendly disposition for you. Uh, but you can see here, you know, from the start, that uh, the Indonesians are going to be more difficult to deal with from the perspective of the Japanese. Now, as Japan begins to lose the war, Hatta and Sukarno feel pressure from the, you know, the domestic sphere um, in Indonesia to declare independence, but neither one is confident enough to do so. All right, they're in a tough situation. They don't feel like they can actually hold the country together as well uh, if they were to declare independence and kick out the Japanese military forces. Eventually, these guys will be kidnapped by their own military forces, and there's still no declaration of Indonesian independence until Japan formally surrenders in August 1945. Okay, and that will, and, and, and because of this, the Dutch will feel like they can come right back to Indonesia. And they do. In the final analysis, Indonesia is a more complex, messy version of Burma. All right, there was a definite good to J uh, J Japan's arrival from the perspective of many indigenous leaders, the eradication of the Dutch, but it wasn't as good as it could have been. There were no promises of independence from the Japanese, and there was a heavy exploitation of all Indonesians, not just sort of, oh, we're going to exploit the Karens and favor the Burmese. Uh, everyone in Indonesia sort of experiences a pretty rough time in World War II, um, and yet there's also far less confidence in the chief Indonesian political rulers that they can actually lead their own unified independent state if you kick out all outside colonial powers just like that, instantaneously. All right, with a hostile West, 
you know, what, what, what's going to happen? The, you know, the Dutch will just come right back. And that's exactly what ends up happening. After the war, Indonesia's future is still hazy. Uh, the Dutch see the possibility of return. They saw the sort of you know uh, uh, halting steps, uh, the hedging of bets back and forth during uh, World War II as well. And they said, you know what? We think this means that we can probably get back into Indonesia and reassert our rule. Um, they are, you know, they do take note of the fact that there is a, a greater antipathy towards the Dutch now since the uh, Japanese have officially kicked you out. But we did not see. A very coherent, clear, strident Indonesian nationalist movement take shape. Um, one that we feel we can't overcome. And the Dutch come back and there is a protracted four-year violent struggle um, in the Indonesian islands after World War II. Of course, they will eventually kick the Dutch out. Um, but you know, in, the strife in Indonesia does not end in 1945. Finally, the Philippines, our last case study. The Philippines is actually one of the easier ones, sort of like with Thailand. The Philippines will be the most anti-Japanese of all the major Southeast Asian states that the Japanese will invade. Uh, the Philippines is sort of at the opposite end of the spectrum from Burma. Okay, They had already received promises of independence from the United States, who had been their colonial ruler before the Japanese invaded. Okay, um, they were the most westernized country in that sense, all right, or at least westernized in the sense that we're familiar with American culture, uh, American institutions, the American military. Um, are there frustrations with the Americans and tensions? Absolutely, that stuff always exists. Um, were they, you know, did they uh, you know, reach a level of crisis? Uh, most historians would say no. All right, there weren't huge frustrations with the general direction of U.S. policy, um, and the United States had already made it clear that the Philippines will be independent. We are not an empire. Remember, you know, the United States often has this discourse. We like to say, oh, we're not really an empire, even though we often are. Um, but in this case, in the Philippines, the United States had already felt pressure before the Japanese came to give real promises to the Filipinos um, that you'll, you'll, you'll be independent. Uh, not 100 years in the future, but you know, imminent. Your, your independence is coming. So the result, when the Japanese come in, and kick out the American military, and, D and Douglas Arthur, you know, has to leave, and famously says, I shall return. The Japanese, in the eyes of many Filipino politicians, are seen as an aggressor who's messing everything up. Come on, we were on the verge of getting independent. We got a good thing going on here. Don't mess it all up for us. And the president of the Philippines, Manuel Quezon, he will actually just go into exile with MacArthur and say, I'm not fighting the Japanese. I'm not staying behind and, and, and collaborating with them at all. Uh, we're leaving because we know the Americans are going to win this war and they're going to come back and we don't want to be on their bad side. And so the president actually just leaves with the Americans and goes into exile and has his own less rousing version of I shall return as well. There was fierce fighting uh, involved in conquering the Philippines and uh, 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 kicking the Americans out. Um, there was a constant guerrilla insurgency, which would be aided by the United States from afar. Um, and there was also a general reluctance to embrace the new Japanese vision for a Filipino political future under Tokyo's domination. Here is a quote from the Japanese Southern Forces headquarters on the undesirable situation that they found in the Philippines. They observed, quote, the natives here are dissolute and lazy and continue to look up to the United States with awe and admiration while making light of the Japanese. Public peace and order are unstable. 
We must not flatter the natives, and we must exhibit our dignity and strength with a solemn military presence so that they will cast aside their admiration of the United States and cooperate with us with all their hearts. All right, that's a pretty uh, uh, honest and damning assessment of general Filipino public opinion uh, that they encountered. They get to the Philippines and they say, this is what we're encountering. And so they sort of try to smear the natives as dissolute and lazy. Um, and here they are. They seem to admire the United States. Uh, you know, how are we going to turn their admiration to us? Well, it's tough if they've already been promised something. Uh, how are you going to one-up the United States? Well, Japan reluctantly then feels the pressure to offer independence relatively early in 1943. Um, and you don't see as much wartime mobilization of the local population because you know you've got to bend over backwards to gain their favor. All right, Burma's independence was premised on extensive support for Japanese war efforts, exploitation of natural resources, and logistical support in the jungles of the north and western fronts where you are fighting with the British, the Australians, the Americans, and the Chinese. Okay, uh, Philippines doesn't have to you know, do all that sort of stuff to get their promise of independence. Uh, so the Philippines gets independence in October 1943 under uh, a man by the name of Jose Laurel, and he then gets an invitation to the Tokyo Conference. All right, when I say independence, uh, you know, again, it's not true independence. The Japanese military is still in your country. How independent can you be? But on paper, Philippines, like Burma, gets their independence. Um, Jose Laurel attempts to walk a fine line when he gets the invitation to go to the Tokyo conference. He has to uh, reconcile the Japanese present with uh, the expected return of the United States. Okay, uh, so when the Japanese force him to declare war on the Allies in 1943, he actually even chooses his language very carefully. Uh, the Japanese, uh, when they declare war, say, we enter into a state of war with Okay, he says we're, that's the language we're going to use. We're not going to say that we declared war on the United States. We entered into a state of war with, in concert with the Japanese, because they forced us to do that. Uh, Laurel at the Tokyo conference uh, avoids uh, publicity. Uh, he avoids a lengthy speech. He tries to keep a very low profile. Uh, he declines. Uh, he successfully maneuvers to decline Japanese political advisors being sent to Tokyo. Uh, he says, the only thing we need from you are technical advisors in agriculture. That's it. We actually have a wonderful quote from Jose Laurel about uh, the way that he justified this. He said, quote, we do need the help of Japanese specialists in the technical field of agriculture, industry, and finance. But as we have self-confidence in the political field, the guidance of Japanese advisors is not required. If a large group of Japanese are to stay in our country, we are afraid it would give the impression that the Philippine government is a puppet regime. Yeah, that would be a pretty good assumption, <laughs> that if you had a large number of Japanese advisors, you'd be seen as the next Manchu Kuo. Uh, I love that line, as we have self-confidence in the political field, uh, we don't need you for that, because you're independent. You're, if you're independent on paper, uh, you know, uh, but you have Japanese advisors uh, controlling every single major decision, how are you any different than Manchukuo, which everyone knows is a joke. Unfortunately for him, Jose Laurel is still imprisoned by the United States after the war. Uh, anyone who stayed behind and worked with the Japanese uh, is not someone that the United States is going to work with after the war. 
Right? You should have come with us when we left <laughs> and showed your disdain for uh, the Japanese. Laurel will blame the United States for his quote-unquote collaboration with the Japanese. He would say, I was a victim of American uh, unpreparedness to protect the Philippines from aggression. You weren't prepared to defend the Philippines. You tucked tail and ran. I stayed behind and had to clean up your mess and do what I could to help the, Fil the, the Philippine people. And now I'm a scapegoat for your failures? So he's not a happy man. As expected long ago after the war, the Philippines gets real independence in 1946. Again, that was something that made it very difficult for the Japanese to make inroads there. So to conclude here, what are the legacies of the relatively short-lived Japanese rule in Southeast Asia? Not even four years. Um, even if it was not always welcomed, and it wasn't, uh, the eradication of Western rule pretty much everywhere uh, had symbolic import for the post-war world. It either quickened or confirmed pre-existing promises of independence. Okay? Uh, or it ensured that the recalcitrant Western imperial powers, such as the Dutch and the British, couldn't come back uh, uh, you know, right away and impose their control, or if they thought they could, they would immediately face an insurgency, like in British Malaya, like in French Indochina, Vietnam. Uh, like in Indonesia, the Dutch come back four years of a messy uh, uh, situation with the Dutch as well. Okay, um, And again, for the umpteenth time, we need to emphasize this is the first time that a non-Western empire challenges the Western empires so decisively and so dramatically. Yes, they beat the Russians in 1905, but the Russians were fighting halfway around the world with enormously long supply lines, and hey, it was the Russians. <laughs> right? Aren't the Russians half Mongols anyways? That's what many people in uh, the Western world would have thought. Yes, there was symbolism to beating the Russians, uh, but there were a few disclaimers, a few caveats that people like to note in 1905. All right. Um, there's no caveats here. There's no caveats from 1941 to 1945. Uh, you, you know, the Japanese roundly defeated the British, the Americans, the most powerful empires on the planet, imprison their soldiers, POW camps, all this sort of stuff. Uh, that is very, very different. And there is, even if it was a mess and it all collapsed in a house of cards at the end and none of the ideals were truly lived up to, um, it was still symbolically important um, to embolden indigenous peoples. Uh, I don't like using the word indigenous peoples, too much baggage with that word. It was it, it emboldened, uh, you know, the people who lived in these countries that uh, if the Westerners come back, we're going to get our independence very quickly now. Either you promised us independence, like in the Philippines, we were already independent, like in Thailand, uh, or the Japanese promised us independence because you wouldn't promise it, um, and as, as in Burma or in Indonesia. We have to prepare for what's going to happen when these imperialist powers are finally defeated um, and the Dutch come back and they're going to be embroiled in war as well. And then finally, the symbolism of the Tokyo Conference in 1943. This is your first meeting of independent Asian leaders who are meeting on an ostensibly equal basis, although in reality we know it's not the slightest bit equal and the Japanese are in charge. Despite the artificiality and the hollowness of it all, the Tokyo Conference in 1943 was the visual political manifestation of the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. No white leaders involved, no Churchill, no Roosevelt, no Stalin. 
This is the idea with that conference. This is Asia for the Asians, led by the most advanced Asians, the Japanese. All right, there will be powerful political symbolism to this. In the 1950s, I believe it's 1955, this will be followed up by another similar conference in which only Asian powers, third world countries are invited. It's known as the Bandung Conference held in Indonesia. Um, and that's sort of the successor to the Tokyo Conference of 1943 uh, without all the hypocrisy and shallowness of the arrangement in which everyone knows the Japanese are truly in charge. In Bandung, it'll be a little bit more a meeting of, of third world equals, so to speak. All right. But the inspiration came from the Japanese Empire. Once everyone was able to sort of cut through the hypocrisy and the double standards. All right, and we see here the way people engage that conference, engage the Japanese arrival in Southeast Asia, uh, accorded, it, it, it conformed with his own perception of his own political career, the self-interest of my state uh, in trying to align the Japanese agenda with my own to get as much as we can from them without conceding more than we're comfortable in conceding. All right, now, I think that's enough war and politics to tide us over for a little while at least. I don't know about you. Um, and uh, so next time, I want to turn briefly before we get into all the atrocities and crimes of World War II. Uh, I think we need a little bit of a breather. <laughs> okay? So next time, we're going to have uh, a more lighthearted and fun topic uh, before we get into the Comfort Women, Unit 731, the Nanjing Massacre, and the Atomic Bomb. Yeah, those are pretty heavy subjects, right? Uh, before we do all of that, I hope you'll join me for a little lighthearted interlude, uh, Jap uh, Baseball in the Japanese Empire. Pretty cool, huh? Baseball in the Japanese Empire in episode 54 of Beyond Huaxia.